Hi friends, just a brief little addendum to this episode you are about to hear. I am outside, so you will probably hear some birds going. Um, I've made a decision to change the direction of the podcast, um, both of my podcasts. So jokes on me coming up with creatures of change because I mean, really where that came from is many of us, arguably all of us, because we are all constantly having to adapt to change, but some of us also really love change and that is me. So I thought it would be fun to do a podcast on that, but turns out it was only intended to be for one brief little season. And now I am shifting my online focus to an exciting new development um, called Bad Bitch Therapist. So soon we will be relaunching in this podcast feed bad bitch therapist podcast in early 2023 but i didn't want these creatures of change conversations or the past body full conversations to get lost and go away forever so i'm just leaving them here in this feed labeled as the podcast they are so you can continue to find those enjoy those share them and meanwhile watch for brand new episodes coming in early 2023 of Bad Bitch Therapist Podcast. Thanks, guys. We've all said it at some point. I'm just a creature of habit. And sure, there's a lot to say for consistency and routine. But what about that other aphorism? The only constant in life is change. Maybe we're creatures of change, too. In this podcast, we'll explore change from a variety of perspectives. Stories of people who've made huge changes in the trajectory of their lives, others who've made small but lasting and impactful changes in their day-to-day lives, and we'll also just nerd out about the science of human behavior and how we can get better at executing the small changes and embracing the big ones. I'm Valerie Martin, and you're listening to Creatures of Change. Caitlin, I am so excited to be sitting here with you. I feel like it's been, what, a couple years maybe since we've chatted? I think that's right. I'm glad to be here with you, Valerie. So, yes, our guest is Caitlin Foss, who I know through Jenny Blake's online community. It's been, gosh, years since we've been in similar orbits. So I've kind of seen from a distance some of the things that you've built and done and transitioned through over those years. And also you've had a number of pretty big personal life changes recently. And you have a PhD in developmental psychology. So really on the topic of change, you are personally and professionally kind of an expert. (laughs) I'm really excited to have you here. So introduce Caitlin and then we'll just jump in. So Caitlin Foss, PhD, is a certified master life coach instructor who helps experts get out of the hamster wheel for good. Common issues include overeating, overdrinking, overworking. She was a tenured psychology professor and department chair before leaving to be a full-time entrepreneur. Simplifying human development and family science outside of the ivory tower is key within Caitlin's work. She's also the author of Unstuck, a three-step system to help high achievers move from stress to flow. It is a practical how-to guide that digs deep into unpack the inner and outer barriers that stand between you and your best self. 
uh, Kaylin, I really need to get around to reading your book because, gosh, it's so tricky. And I'll even have clients ask me sometimes this question around like, so how much do I just accept this thing about myself and how much do I continue trying to work to change it? And that's so tough, right? There's value in embracing sort of our natural tendencies and knowing ourselves and then using our sort of systems and tools accordingly, but also being honest about our own limitations. And I very much am a growth mindset person. And I know I have grown and changed. It's just, you know, those certain little issues that are just very stubborn, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think of something I really lean into now is time is constructed. So, okay, this is made up. Then, so am I looking at it from that perspective that it's constructed and made up and then I can use time to my advantage? Or am I in the construct believing like, There's a right and wrong way to do time management. There's like an optimization or even within the construct of productivity, like I'm supposed to be a productive human. Mm. I'm in that. I get trapped and stuck really easily. If I'm observing it, then it's like, oh, this is a game. This is an opportunity. How can I use this? Yeah, exactly. And that shifting the mindset piece is so important. And I do think that it's not necessarily like we should reach the pinnacle of optimizing every moment of every day, right? That part of my learning and unlearning is like, it's really okay to just sit and meditate for 30 whole minutes, even though technically I could check the box with 10, right? And that would be good enough. But what if there's some value in me just sitting here longer doing nothing? Which reminds me that you also teach and practice meditation, right? Are you a longtime meditator? Is that something that kind of came on board more in recent years? I was always interested in it and would go to an occasional workshop. I had been on silent meditation retreat. I would talk with my college students about it, and we'd do a minute meditation before class started, which drove some of them crazy and others (laughs) appreciated it. But so I would dabble in it, I'd say, and then and use the Headspace app to be able to check Mm -hmm. boxes of like, I did it. I reached 365 days on the Headspace (laughs) app. Like that was, you know, a pinnacle moment or something. You get a trophy. (laughs) And then in the past two years, I really stepped into, oh, I like meditation is a tool for embodiment and here's an opportunity to connect meditation with all aspects of my life, not just treat it as an activity of something to go do. How can I be in a meditative state throughout my days? And the training I have specifically, it's instinctive meditation. So Lauren Roche and Camille Maureen and This idea, we aren't just trying to transcend our mind. This is like, how do you actually be in your body and let your body have experiences while you meditate? So I love introducing that technique to people because they're often like, oh, I thought I was supposed to sit quietly and just try to get rid of my thoughts. Like, Mm -hmm. we might laugh and cry in this meditation class today and that would be okay too. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm such a course junkie. And I was looking at your website before this and I was like, oh, I didn't know Lauren Roche had a meditation (laughs) course, but I'm actually about to start one with my primary teacher, Josh Summers, who does a yin style of meditation, which I think is some similarities in terms of like receptivity to really 
allow what is to emerge and that we don't have to fight against that. And yes, there's times where a more young approach of like, I can focus on this candle flame or I can focus on my breath. It can be valuable. But I also think, especially in our very young culture, that idea of allowing and receptivity and flowing with is so valuable. So that sounds like an awesome training. (laughs) So as I mentioned in your bio, you were a tenured professor and department chair. And I'm sure you've heard a bajillion times the notion of, well, tenure is like the ultimate goal, right? Like once you reach that, that is the pinnacle and you're just cushed from there and you just ride that for the next four decades or whatever it is. So help us understand what was going on for you that you reached that and then we're like, no, this ain't it. You said, I'm sure you've heard this. And I thought immediately, like, I believed it, Valerie. Oh, like, I that it was. That, like, <laughs> I get that and I will be set. And I was. I mean, it is true in a sense, although higher education is experiencing a whole transformation accelerated by COVID. And yeah. so a lot of even tenured professors now recognize, oh, this isn't what I originally signed up for. So for me, it was... You know, I can pretty much go all in on things. I get really excited about some things. <laughs> and I know the feeling. I, right? Then higher education <laughs> was that for me. It was a safe mm-hmm. container. It was the opportunity to dive into something deep, the opportunity to feel security, I think. Mm-hmm. So it met all of those boxes until I started to realize, wait. I don't, I'd love to actually then dive deep and then change to something else. And like, I want to do this now. And I change, right? Just change. And there's not a lot of change when you're, you know, I was going to be teaching lifespan development for the next 30 years. Mm. And I loved it for a set of years. And I evolved the class and it was, you know, my students were great. And then it just reached this point of like, I've taught this enough times. (laughs) I'm ready to teach the next thing or, you know be at a different level with students and and there's not that flexibility in academia right right not usually correct so for me it was one of those oh i see this isn't like imagining doing anything for 30 years at this point one activity like that or one job is like wow that that feels more boxing me in Mm -hmm. than oh i do have freedom and flexibility and so it evolved into oh, wow, that I really love coaching. And I didn't know I loved this part of it. I had always pushed away being a therapist, very closely related <laughs> to what I do. But I pushed that practitioner side away until I was ready for it and pursued the coaching, which then just grew and blossomed into, I want to do more of this. Mm. How can I now transform what I'm doing in academia into doing it with a variety of people outside of academia, uh, different stages, different collaborations, different opportunities. Mm -hmm. It just kept growing from there. And then it was time to leave the box, the constructed nature of academia. I think, you know, I'm part of it at the time. So if I knew I was wanted to start transition in 2016, it took me until 2020 to officially leave. Part of it during that time where I was in my own growth was 
like the system is broken and we need to fix it and no one's fixing it and Mm -hmm. since then kind of a calming down of recognizing every system is like that right now (laughs) it's It's all broken and i can be angry about it or i can like do what i can about it and for me it just wasn't in that container but now as i see bigger picture on some level and then still limited in many ways like okay here's where my work is right now and i don't have to like fight against the system to (laughs) to right yeah it's so tough because for the people who do want to stay in those roles more power to you like please change it from within to the extent that it's possible yes and not everyone i think this goes for so many different types of systems workplaces industries some people it's just not going to be the right call for them to stay in that system and try to do their best to like square peg the round hole and all of that so when you had decided yeah i'm gonna leave were the people in your life were they like what no you can't do that or were they supportive of you i would go back and forth even that last year so if i leave i officially decide something like march 1st 2020 pre-covid and you're like okay i'm leaving i'm doing this but before that i'd had many starts and stops i'm kind of even in the fall thinking like okay i'm definitely gonna leave and then backtracking and being like no i gotta put in one more year blah 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 so people are very close to me watched me do that push-pull of trying to leave and then officially leaving. So they were supportive of me, for sure, watching this evolve and happen. And then there were many people who just didn't know. So some people were quite surprised. They would phrase it like, I didn't know you were unhappy. I was like, well, on one level, I hear what you're saying, but it's not just unhappy. Mm -hmm. Like, I have other things I'm called to do. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like happiness, unhappiness. It was just, I have different places to be. So it's time to go. And let me say too, I guess part of it was as I resolved the anger about my position that I was in, then I, I did really love that last year of being a professor. And not just because I was leaving, but it was like, I mm-hmm. did make peace with this idea of I could stay. I see that I could stay and it's still time to go. Mm. that was a really powerful place to be so yeah the people around me witnessed that some people heard day-by-day experiences and other people said oh yeah I thought you were talking about maybe leaving you did it yeah it's interesting too like just hearing you talk about being able to reach that point where you weren't necessarily leaving out of anger and it was more grounded I think of that notion of running towards something rather than running away from something And I will caveat that with, (laughs) there are sometimes systems, families, relationships, workplaces that we do need to run away from. So sometimes that is totally appropriate. But when it's not an issue of sanity or safety necessarily, I think it's really nice to be able to get to that place where it feels more proactive than reactive. And it really is about the excitement of what you're moving toward, which was what it was for you at that point. Yeah. And built on a whole structure of privilege and Mm, uh, ramping up for many years, having that flexibility. 
navigating the fear, you know, part of this is so easy to look back on and be like, this is how I did it. But oh, that fear of taking each step along the way and dealing with that throughout the process, very real and intense at the time. So you opted for the coaching route rather than the psychotherapy route. And with your PhD, I imagine that did not include like working toward a clinical license, right? So was it more a function of like, I want to support people in their growth and change, but I don't want to have to go get another freaking graduate degree. (laughs) So I'm going to do it this way. Or was it specifically you knew you wanted to work not necessarily mental health challenges, but more sort of growth and goal oriented things? Yeah. And I had always been the growth oriented person, even Mm -hmm. writing my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation. My advisors would say like, Kaylin, you could get money if you focused on something negative. Grants are about helping mental health population. Tell us what the problem is here. And I'm like, but what if there's not one and we focus on well-being? That was my dissertation. I'm going to do well-being. And they're like, well, you can. We'll let you. But just know you're not headed for a top university research grant world if you're going to go that route. And I was like, okay, I'm fine with that. Let me focus on the positive. So when coaching came around, it became more on my radar. It was like, oh, look at this whole group of people focused on positive well-being growth Mm -hmm. outcomes rather than the mental health pathology. What do you do? do? Mm -hmm. Right. What do you do when you have depression? So the abnormal psychology pieces of it never really interested me as as something I wanted to deep dive into. And I was Mm -hmm. surrounded by peers who did focus there and My PhD, the practitioners were our marriage and family therapists. I was always like surrounded by people who were working with populations and could see what their daily life was like. And Mm -hmm. this was like, that's not that's not for me. But, oh, coaching is. I always am so impressed, too, with coaches who have actually built a career, make a living from doing it, because I think we have to recognize that for every like one coach who's really making a living doing it. It is one of those very unregulated spaces where it is all across the board. People get excited about these topics of helping others and they're like, I want to do that. I'm not going to discourage people, but I do think it is one of those things that there needs to be more realistic understanding of what it actually requires to be successful, quote unquote, to make a living, all of that. So what did that look like for you? How have you done it? Yeah. So what happened in, let's say, okay, 2016 through 2020, I really had it as a side and spent time doing some of the marketing. I know how to do that, but I was also not really called to that part of it. So I would have some clients come along and word of mouth was always the most popular. And it also felt like an uphill battle with the marketing Mm -hmm. piece. So I was very interested in spending more time coaching, of course. So through the Life Coach School, there was the opportunity to coach in their program. And I was putting in 20 hours a week into that program for a year. That added up quickly into real experience, real hours. Oh, I see what this is like. And that's part of what helped me know I wanted to do it full time. Mm -hmm. So 2020 to 2021... I spent about nine months to a year being on my own, completely on Mm. my own, 
bring in my salary. So I had more traditional packages and people would come Mm -hmm. to me uh, and I was doing marketing efforts and all of that. What I realized was, oh, I've been studying this entrepreneurship thing for years now. And now that I'm living it, I see what I like and don't like. Mm -hmm. I really, I I love the work of coaching. Mm -hmm. I don't love the marketing. And I especially (laughs) don't love that I was still like very much in an hourly world at the end of the day. Like if I take a week off, that's X amount of money miss because I'm not in the chair. Yeah. And so like seeing that, recognizing that some people can totally handle that and all the power to them. And I was like, wait a minute, I do like being an employee and I really miss the community of colleagues. Uh, okay. So once I knew that, then the opportunity, of course, felt like it's landed in my lap of like, here, you can work for Team Katrina. So Team uh, Katrina Ubell is a former pediatrician, okay. life coach, who I'm on her team now. And I've been there for uh, almost a year and a half, yeah. full time. I coach 20 hours and wow. she does all the marketing on a W-2 salary with her. And yeah. I still have flexibility to have some private clients, but mostly yeah. I spend my time focused on speaking and working with teams because that's my next area of growth cool so for me that was the path like oh hey great to be an employee again and I also really respect what people are doing as entrepreneurs yeah I love that I think that's just awesome that you can speak to both sides of that experience and that you know that if you did love all those other aspects of entrepreneurship and you wanted to do that like you know you could because you did it right successfully And there is a lot to be said for being an employee, I think. And I mean, I'm banking on that literally because I now employ people and I need to make it an attractive opportunity for them, right? When they're in that limbo between graduate school and full licensure, they can't always just go out and hang their own shingle. But a lot of times people who I might want to hire would be in a position where they'd have that option. And so how can I offer something that is competitive with that? So yeah, I love that. Um, And I do think, too, that because we're a country that emphasizes entrepreneurship so much, we need to get real about what that's really like and like, hey, do you want to do all of these things? And if not, that's fine. Just maybe go do something. The other thing I've done throughout this time is I train to to teach the new life coaches at the life coach school. Ah, So that's actually wrapping up right now of my last cohort and like groups of students where they were becoming life coaches and helping them on their journey. You know, like, hey, are you thinking you're going to make $100,000 tomorrow on this? (laughs) Like, hey, there's some people promoting that. Like, good for them. Go follow them. I'm not that person. right? Like, this was a slow build for me. And I'm an employee again. And I love it. And like, this is my path. It's just one way to go. Cool. Build your own. So as far as the personal life changes that you've been through, it's just, it's a lot. So I would love for you to just share a little bit about what did your life look like, your personal life look like a few years ago, and then how has that shifted? And then we'll get into just how you've navigated through all of that. Yeah. And if I slow down on this conversation at all, or an emotion comes up, we try to know how to process. It's just because some of it's fresh. I love to be an open book and for people to see what I'm actually living through rather than hide anything. 
Yeah. But, you know, so it's a, um, it has been quite the transition. So 2020, mm-hmm. I was a homeowner, married, had just left my job. And my husband and I, we had foster children and we had adopted a daughter. We focused on teenagers. So that was part of our life. And it was like I had built this whole life. So that's what it looked like. And in my mind, I thought the only thing that was going to change was my career. I mean, I pretty much needed to not know what was on the horizon to be able to take some of those next steps. So what then happened was we moved out of a pretty isolated town area when we realized, oh, we're not location bound that like we get in academia. Let's go home to our home state where we both grew up. We sold our house. We go home. My husband and I realize, hey, we've been in this together for 16 years, basically my whole adulthood. And maybe we don't have to do this anymore. Let's do like a big push to be able to like see if this is, are we going to stay together? Mm. And at the end, it was like, oh, no, like we want Mm. different things at the end of the day. Let's pursue our individual paths. Now, I say that like that's what I thought the story of my marriage was. And then, uh, so it's, that happens. And then my, I'm almost divorced and my husband dies. I, my ex-husband really. So I'm both at this point, we're about six months out from his death. And so I've had both the experience of being a widow on one, in one sense, very technical yeah. and being divorced, having gone through the right. process of divorce. So divorce, death. And then a complete shift in no longer caretaking for the daughter we had adopted. The dogs don't live with me. I'm in my own apartment, which had been part of the transition already. But it's like, it's just me in my apartment, working as a coach. Like that part actually then was the stable part compared to everything else that was happening personally. And then realizing because his death was sudden and all the details started to emerge about it. It was like, oh, there were things going on I didn't even realize, Mm -hmm. which then kind of crumbled the story of a lot of my marriage in a way that really helped with so much growth about the idea that, like, I'm always just standing on stories Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Like, I'm a human being that builds up stories, and then sometimes they come down, and then it's like, oh, oh, let me rebuild another identity, and then it crumbles back down, Mm -hmm. and it's like, whoa. And I actually, you know, now I land into a place of, can I, how can I be nobody right now? Mm -hmm. How can I not build up another identity to stand on or to be an expert about? How do I just be? It's kind of that Buddhist idea of no self, right? We invest so much in shaping, crafting these stories of who we are, who we think we are, who we want to be, who we don't want to be. And then sometimes either it's miserable that process because we're so invested in creating a certain impression um, or living up to a certain story or life comes along and smacks us across the face and is like, guess what? You're not that anymore. That's not it. So being able to kind of hold lightly that non-clinging doesn't mean we don't care about things, but it's a recognition of all of the variables that kind of aren't within our control and 
a recognition of impermanence, of the fact that things change, even things we can't imagine would ever change, can and do. 100%. And I'll say my deepest fear, I don't know if I could have articulated this a couple of years ago, if it would have come out of me, but looking back, my deepest fear was his death. So that he would die and like, could I survive that? Would I be able to survive that? It just was unimaginable. Mm -hmm. So to actually go through that experience has been like a, huh, just so baffling. Like I faced a fear. It's, you know, if you even like leaving academia, I was facing a fear and let me face this next fear. And okay, I'm ready to lean into my path of facing my fears. Didn't sign up for this one, obviously, but at the same time, I'm still here on the other side and I'm still in my human body and I'm still here. Like, uh, huh, how did that happen? And uh, right. still processing that along with the grief. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I could feel that kind of grief and still feel held by the universe. I never could have even imagined that until I yeah. lived it. Yeah, I did a whole class earlier this week on the topic of resilience and then the ways that we define resilience, approach how we work with people. And of course, there's a lot of systemic things that we need to take into account rather than just like, buck up, soldier, like, just be more resilient. Like, well, also, we could do some things to make some of these situations better. (laughs) But um, but it is such a powerful concept looking at the strength of the human spirit. not to say that means we should just continue to take a beating if we have another choice, but that we survive things we couldn't possibly imagine that we could survive and adapt to and change and creating ourselves all over again. Yeah. And I think about how numb I was a couple of years ago before I really embraced this embodiment path and have been working with a facilitator directly on that. When I was numb, I thought that was a good thing. I didn't have much emotion. I couldn't tell you what emotions were going on, all of that. And I think, you know, the journey with clients, when they start to come out of that, a lot of my clients will realize, oh, okay, I wasn't feeling emotions. Let me process those now. It's really painful. But then sometimes... They then start to think, oh, there's a place where I get back to steady emotional regulation. Just this week, I think I told a client like, hey, listen, where I am on this journey, even though I feel really embodied is, you know, one moment I'm looking at the fall trees and the leaves like, oh, love is everywhere. This Mm -hmm. is beautiful. And like three hours later, I'm crying in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. I'm sobbing like that doesn't really go on Instagram. And that's the experience of emotions. And I think I phrased it to her something like, can I just now ride the roller coaster Mm. rather than try to control the roller coaster? Right. (laughs) And I almost I was curious about that, too, in your story and hearing about the more recent shift from maybe not even recognizing how sort of numb you were in your bio. We talk about overeating, overdrinking, overworking. Some of those things, yeah, they're kind of their own numbing agents. But then even the ceasing of those things can become such a rigid control where it's like, I no longer do this thing. I don't drink. I do not quote unquote overeat, like whatever it is. But it is still sort of that 
controlled experience. So I'm curious what that's been like for you. If you agree that even after maybe you stopped doing some of those things, was it, was it still numb, but in just a control way rather than an overdoing way? For sure. And I love how you articulated that. Mm -hmm. of, it's like, and now I'm going to build a new identity of being someone who doesn't drink alcohol. <laughs> so the alcohol thing to me didn't go too far in that sense. But I do mm -hmm. even watch what I say now in terms mm -hmm. of like, okay, yes, I haven't had a drink in four years. And I'm not going to climb the pedestal of, and that therefore means I will never have a drink again. Yeah. And, or this means something great sure. because I've done that for four years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's just been part of my path. Mm -hmm. And it is fascinating to have moments like that intense grief and also not feeling called to have a drink, mm -hmm. but to still see myself, you know, it was a blessing in many ways to have so much paperwork to do after somebody's death, mm -hmm. like, and the logistics and cleaning out a house and all this stuff was like, really good at that actually mm -hmm. and for me it was this blessing of like it gave me somewhere to focus while mm -hmm. I went through shock and while I was just like what's happening so it, co it helped me cope mm -hmm. and and for other people that would have been too much kind of like not what they wanted to do so that was like a, oh there's a place where I overwork can I have compassion for that rather than trying to change it or try to make a story about that was bad that I coped that way mm -hmm. um that's been part of the journey of like those, you know, if, if reviewing overeating, over drinking or whatever we're using the buffer as bad, then we get into the story of it has to be something to overcome. Right. And of course, with food, we know very clearly how that can be taken to other extremes, even if it's not full on eating disorder extremes, it can still become rigid, obsessive, puritanical all of that kind of stuff. So not like vilifying the thing, but being curious about our relationship with it and our moment to moment experience. Yeah. We talk a lot on Team Katrina about freedom around food. And for me, it's that experience of, am I filling up on love or like tapping into my spirit and the light and that internal resource rather than being in the ice cream aisle seeking it externally or right. externally yeah. from people and just that can I get it from the outside it's like no no no. I got tuned back in remember it comes from the inside out <laughs> and then ice cream is not as appealing and there's days where it's very enjoyable yeah right I mean yeah as long as I'm not trying to fill the the love gas tank with food then uh, I still want that nutter butter check. Yes, I do. <laughs> but I want to I want to do that inquiry to make sure because I might eat 10 nutter butters and I'm still not going to fill that gas tank because it's the wrong one. I love that love gas tank. Yeah, <laughs> so true. It's, um, and it's a it's been such a slowing down process to catch these like and getting out of that hamster wheel for me is there's getting out of it and there's the staying slow. It is so tempting to get back into it and be caught up yeah. in whatever society hamster wheel wants to is existing. Yeah. You know, so one thing I wanted to come back to, you mentioned the grief with your husband and just like how that gets combined with all the logistical paperwork nightmare, just this whole thing. And then you're living in a new place and 
it's just a whirlwind of transition with that piece of it that was never, never part of anyone's plan. But the relationship was moving toward an end. But as far as your daughter, how long had y'all had your daughter and how are you feeling with that transition? What kind of position is she in now? Yeah, so I can speak for myself. I don't want to speak for her. I don't know what her journey is right now. So we had her for three years. So we lived together as a family unit, the three of us for three years. And we also had a foster son who had, you know, in the system, they say like Mm. reunited, successfully reunited with biological parents. And so he was also part of our lives. And uh, on some level, I say, like, I had two children, like mm. they were teenagers, and I feel like I helped raise them for a time period. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was like sometimes the three of us, the four of us, mm-hmm. that was a three year, three, four year process, basically. Okay. Now, the thing about foster care is one, you don't hear a lot of stories about it and the yeah. system, and there's even kind of viewed this idea of what it means to be successful so I've actually had a lot of people transition in my life who can handle this and other people who can't because Mm -hmm. the idea that I was no longer going to take care of her and then she's on a different path now which I won't go into but Mm -hmm. that this you know in some ways like I gave up on that idea of continuing Mm -hmm. to be her physical mom Mm -hmm. I was never her biological mom but like to be someone that's raising her and Mm -hmm. to no longer do that anymore was is in a lot of ways could be viewed as giving up not engaging with the system Mm -hmm. foster failure like all of this is wrapped up in it too but part of why I want to be transparent about it is like there are so many people like me that hide it and can't talk about it and it's viewed as bad like there's a Mm. storyline where I was always supposed to take care of her no matter what Mm -hmm. happened whoever died who didn't Mm -hmm. that's what like moms do and that wasn't my storyline and Mm -hmm. and I chose that is a is part of the piece that people don't always want can't handle or Sure. With, with me as I go. Or have their own their own story, their own judgment about you are only in charge to, of your own story. And like we've talked about, only even that to a degree. So we we just have to make the decisions that are right for us. And and I think that's the thing that honestly is so scary to me about kids is this notion that it's a forever thing. And I get with the foster system that's obviously different and there's a lot of variables at play with that. But yeah, I can't ever see myself choosing that permanently or long term. And so I just have opted out of that life path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want biological children was the other piece. Sometimes I forget that like, oh, it seems like from the outside, probably we couldn't have children. And mm. then we ended up fostering teenagers or something. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. no, I was always like a no kid. You didn't want birth. little kids. Yeah. I mm-hmm. didn't want to give birth. Now, let's be clear. It's what is 2022. Like, I'm not going to also then say I have never wanted children. And therefore, at 36, I'm going to get away with never having children. Uh-huh. That's a pedestal that will come for me if I <laughs> try to stand on it. Like when, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
Is that like, are you saying like from kind of a superstition standpoint that if you say that now that like a year from now, you're going to be like, guess what? I want a kid. I want to have a baby. <laughs> well, it's that like making peace with. There's always part of me. You don't know. Baby yeah. That like, let me just make sure I honor that part rather than try sure. to stuff it down. Yeah. And it's a bigger picture than me. Like I'm not sure. the one driving the ship. My ego is not the one running yeah. the ship. Let me lean into the flow and see where things go because I lived a whole life like that. I run the show. I decide what I want to mm-hmm. do. I know I'm going to do exactly this at all costs. I've already done that. And so yeah. what if I actually surrender more often to let's see where life takes me? Be more like water at this season, at this phase of life. Yeah. yeah. And that's a lot of stories either. Or examples of child-free women at 36. What does that mean? And I'm fascinated by the journey of women and what gets shared and what doesn't. Me too. And I'm the same age. And it's just always something that I want to bring into conversations because it is so, it's just not really talked about. I'm very grateful that it's much more socially acceptable as an option for women nowadays, whether they're in a couple partnership or not, but it's still something that feels often on the fringe. And it's that navigating too, it brings up for me that I'm in a newer, I'm in a new city, basically. I grew up in this state, but I haven't spent time here as an adult. So Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. So spending time, it's like a new city to me and I'm meeting new people. And COVID doesn't have us all shut down, locked down the way it did. And so just meeting new people and hearing the questions they ask, like, do you have children? Mm -hmm. Like the things we ask people when you first Mm -hmm. meet them. And sometimes just not knowing the answer of like, do I open that can? Do I open Mm -hmm. that possibility right now? (laughs) Do I just say no? Like, no, I don't have children. Yeah, right. Things like that. It just, I play it by ear. Yeah. And it's also, uh, there's times to say it and questions like that. And there's times to be like, I have a whole nother past and this is where I am now. Mm-hmm. Right. How do I define myself in this particular context? <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been so wonderful just hearing your story and so many things related to change personally, professionally. It's just super inspirational. And I know that you're working with, you said it's called Team Katrina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Team Katrina Ubellis, who I work for. Yeah. So we can put that link in the show notes. And I know that you do some speaking. You've got your book on your website. So tell people where to go online to find you and how, if they're interested in working with you in some capacity, what to do. Yeah. So my handle on social media and all the places is Dr. Caitlin Foss. So C-A-I-T-L-I-N-F-A-A-S, two A's in my last name. And so that's my website too. So you can visit there. There's a free chapter of the book there. And by the time this comes out, my time course will also be available. So the free chapter is about time, reclaiming your time. And then there's a course that you can buy and participate in and have access to me to talk about time. And then as people reach out, sometimes I have one-on-one availability. I do just one-off sessions and 
happy to be a speaker for anybody's teams or discussing opportunities for workshops, incorporating the meditation, incorporating topics and ways to navigate life. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Valerie. enjoyed this episode and if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it or maybe leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I would be ridiculously appreciative. If you or someone you know has an interesting and inspiring story about change, please reach out and let me know. You can send any interview recommendations to creaturesofchangepodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and previous episodes, head over to gaiacenter.co slash podcast. That's G-A-I-A center.co slash podcast, where you can also check out our sister podcast, Body Bowl. You can connect with me on Instagram at Val K. Martin, that's K-A-Y spelled out, and at the Gaia Center, which is the name of my Nashville-based therapy practice. You can also sign up for the Gaia Center monthly newsletter at bit.ly slash Gaia Center News, where we'll share about groups and events we're offering locally, along with tips and resources from our therapists that we hope will be valuable and relevant wherever you may be listening from. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time.